this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning Canadian author, activist and filmmaker. Since publishing her debut book, No Logo, in 1999, she's become one of the world's foremost public intellectuals, regularly featuring on lists of the most influential people around the globe. Her ninth book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World, is a fascinating deep dive into the world of conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers, wellness influencers and far-right campaigners. Naomi Klein, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to have you here. And of course, when I first got the pitch, I thought... Naomi Klein. Isn't she that weird one that's an anti-vaxxer? And then, of course, I read the book and realised that that is exactly your point. <laughs> Let's start with what is a doppelganger? Hmm. So the word is a German word and it translates literally as a double walker. So it's the idea that there is another you walking around somewhere and some people believe that we all have one and we could bump into them and find ourselves looking into a living mirror. For me, my experience of having this doppelganger is less about me looking at her and saying, oh, you look like me, and more other people perennially mixing us up, as you just did. <laughs> so, you know, this has actually been happening for more than a decade now, mostly online. Like I would suddenly, all of a sudden, just be, somebody would be getting really angry at me about a position that I didn't take. <laughs> you know, like, how dare you say this about, you know, Edward Snowden? Or, wow, you have strange feelings about chemtrails and, <laughs> and, and oddly shaped clouds, because that's, that, you know, other Naomi has been in the conspiracy business for, for some time now. It didn't happen in the early part of my writing career because I think that we had very distinct writerly lanes in those early years where Naomi Wolf, who we're talking about, you know, her first book was The Beauty Myth, famously, which came out when I was in university. And then she, she wrote a series of books that were very clearly on women's issues. And she was a yeah. feminist icon. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Second wave feminist icon. She advised famously Al Gore when he ran for president. She was his women's issues advisor. And I was writing about capitalism and climate change and states of emergency and, and real conspiracies, to be honest, right? Like if <laughs> The Shock Doctrine was a book that was about in large part, covert U.S. government programs that overthrew democratically elected leaders in the global south, like Salvador Allende. And so not connecting the dots and doing my own research, but but literally, you know, very clearly sourced to declassified documents. And I say this because I think sometimes when we talk about conspiracy theorists, we we can talk ourselves into this idea that there are no conspiracies and only a crazy person would ever think that, but there are conspiracies mm -hmm. in the world. And so... In the 2000s, sort of starting, I guess, in 2008, she started talking more about plots. And so, like, she would say that she didn't think that George W. Bush would let the 2008 elections happen, that there was going to be a coup. And there was a lot of talk about how there were going to be coups in the U.S. 
And that's when things started to get blurry. That like the, like the lines started to get wobbly. So that's that's my experience of a doppelganger. It's less me going, oh my god, you're just like me, and more other people going, conflating the Naomi's into into yeah. one Naomi. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about Naomi and specifically here Naomi Klein, <laughs> because you're from a from Jewish liberal roots. Your parents, your mother, certainly an activist against the Vietnam War, and it seems to me like a, a wonderfully kind of stable, open literary background. Stable. (laughs) I mean, the truth is, I mean, it's not so liberal. My family, on my father's side, they were socialists. They They were not sort of establishment liberals in any way. My grandfather was an artist who organized the first strike at Walt Disney. He was an animator and was fired and blacklisted. And and my father was a war resistor. And and that's why we moved to Canada, because he was resisting that war. So it didn't feel like we were super entrenched in the establishment. It felt more like we were a family, a little bit of dissidents, including my mother's work. She was a feminist documentary filmmaker. But you know, her films were not warmly received by the establishment. So, I mean, she was deconstructing porn long before that was a thing. Well, I mean, she was part of a second wave feminist movement, Andrew Dworkin, you know, Catherine Kinnitz. So she, you know, I grew up in that. It's a wonderfully privileged way to grow up. And I feel happy and proud to be part of that left tradition. I think it gave me a different model of how to be a journalist and a writer and a filmmaker that was that made space to say I'm part of a movement I'm part of a movement for social transformation one of my mom's colleagues at the National Film Board of Canada Studio D which was the first women's film studio and she was a staff director said objectivity means I object to your activity. Um, So, you know, I feel lucky that I grew up with a kind of another idea of how one could make media that was unapologetically part of a project of social change. Mm. And so, yeah, that's my background, which is a little different from my doppelganger's background, which is a more kind of traditional liberal Mm. academic background. But of course, you share a name and it's a name that early on you really didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I didn't like the name Naomi because it was constantly mispronounced. Naomi, which I felt sounded very whiny. <laughs> Naomi. And I would, you know, no matter how much I introduced myself as Naomi, it was always, it came back to me with this whine. So I used to threaten that I would change my name as soon as I turned 18. I, I'm named after my mother's father, who died a year before I was born, whose name was Nathan. So my mom wanted an NA name. And there's a very funny letter from my sister. She's from my sister from my father's first marriage, Misha, where she she writes suggestions for NA names. She was seven at the time, and one of her suggestions was <laughs> was Necarenda. <laughs> she was just making up <laughs> N names. But I felt that something like a little more normy, like Natalie or. I liked Natalia or Natasha, seemed very exotic and cool. And I would actually use Natasha in bars in Montreal when I was like 16 with college guys. Be like, yeah, my name's Natasha. <laughs> but uh, no, I didn't change my name, unfortunately. I mean, but you look <laughs> could into... Could have saved me a world of it grief. It really could. could it? <laughs> you look into what the name means and you also, you compare it to the name Ruth. Mm-hmm. And that becomes really quite significant in the book. Well, sure. It's a biblical name from the book of Ruth. And it's it's an interesting story about loyalty between women and beyond bloodlines. So Naomi 
has these two daughter daughters-in-law, one of one of whom is Ruth, and they all lose their husbands. The daughters lose their husbands, who are Naomi's sons, and Naomi loses her husband. So she's a widower, and they're widowers. And Ruth is so loyal to Naomi, and they're each other's own family that she decides not to go back to her own family, but to stay with Naomi and go to Bethlehem. And she says, "Where you go, I will follow." And they go to Bethlehem, and Naomi is so bereaved, she's so grief-struck, that Naomi, in the translation from Hebrew, means pleasant or pleasing, and she tells the townspeople in Bethlehem that they should no longer, you should no longer call me Naomi, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Call me Mara, which means bitter. So any of our listeners who may have been to a Passover Seder, right, will have, know about the bitter herbs, they're the maror. But I had a best friend when I was growing up in Montreal named Mara, and we used to say that to each other. You should no longer call me Naomi, call me Mara, because <laughs> the world, <laughs> the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. <laughs> and a lot of this, of course, is about your own brand, brand Naomi Klein, as opposed to brand Naomi Wolf, which is hugely ironic given your first book, No Logo. Well, it is. It's hilarious, frankly. I thought it was pretty funny, pretty ironic. (laughs) Um, I mean, this is the thing about doppelganger stories is you think that you're confronting the other, but you're always ultimately confronting yourself. And of course, there are many examples in literature of of doppelganger, of protagonists confronting their doppelganger, and it turns out that they're confronting themselves. Mm. And if it's a violent confrontation, then they die, like in Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson or... The Myth of Dorian, uh, Dorian, Gray. Dorian Gray, where you, he stabs the painting because he's so appalled that he, he seizes himself growing old and, and withered and, and he dies, right? So this is the problem with confronting your doppelganger is you do always end up confronting yourself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you have so many literary examples. Charlie Chaplin with The Great Dictator, mm-hmm. called Philip Roth and Operation Shylock. I find your comparisons with that so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then to sort of jump forward in the book, really, because there's so much to talk about it with it. But you then go into the whole idea of Judaism and then you look at Israel and Palestine. And that's really a, a typical kind of doppelganger relationship. I wondered if you'd unpick that. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the end. Of, that's the last stop in the doppelganger story. And, and, you know, I guess one of the things that I liked about this as a device, you know, it's not a book about her. It's not a book about, exactly. about Naomi Wolf, although, you know, there are parts that look at how she has changed and what that tells us about broader shifts in our society and a kind of a collective vertigo about who we can trust and who anybody is and, and what can be counted on. But what I liked about the doppelganger as a kind of a device is it's a narrow aperture that mm. you can use to look at a lot of different things, a lot of different kinds of doubling and doppelganging, right? Mm. So you mentioned the brand. I, I revisit this concept that it was the subject matter of my first book, which is the idea of when it comes to the, an individual creating a kind of product version of you that is partitioned from your sort of real self that is for others to consume and what that doubling does to us as humans, for us to think of ourselves in that way, for us to partition ourselves and perform ourselves as we're so encouraged to do online. But yeah, the Israel-Palestine chapter begins with a conversation with my mother who, you know, after looking at different reasons why this this could be happening, my mom just finally says, you know, it's just anti-Semitism. You're both named Naomi, basically have big mouths, <laughs> you know, opinionated Naomi's, <laughs> you know, you fit a certain archetype, you're a type. 
And um, so that chapter goes into this other kind of more sinister doubling that people who are part of despised groups, not only Jews, but also Jews, have a double projected onto them. James Baldwin wrote about that you know, so beautifully. So did W.B. Du Bois about this sort of double consciousness that you are you, but you are also carrying the idea of blackness, or in their case, black men, being projected onto you. And you mentioned Roth, his famous doppelganger novel, which I found really, really useful to, for thinking with, is Operation Shylock. In that book, he makes the argument that Shylock, Shakespeare's Shylock, is the doppelganger of all Jews, that this is the figure we carry around, like it or not, it is projected onto us by anti-Semites. Mm. And so what does it mean to have this shadow that is not in your control, in the same way that a doppelganger is not in your control, because it is the creation of others, and it ebbs and flows throughout history. Sometimes it, it, it weighs a little heavier, a little, a little lighter, and other times... As we know, it, it, the shadow consumes us, mm, right? Mm. And so that shadow of Shylock and the genocide that it generated as a tool of hate by the Nazis is a big part of the argument for why the state of Israel must exist, because Shylock is eternal. That's the argument, that one can never, ever be free of Shylock. It's not. It's a force that cannot that can't be ever changed. You know, Roth writes, writes about it as a kind of a primordial presence. Mm. And so then that becomes an argument for not being part of a broader anti-racist movement, a broader like coalition of all the people dealing with shadows who are not just shadows projected onto them or not just Jews, but no, we need a fortress state. And then we need to create our own double and I quote Carolyn Rooney talking about Israel as a doppelganger society, which which then creates the abject self in the form of the Palestinians um, and replicates many of the forms of dispossession that Jews faced in pogroms, in ghettoization. And it's just a tremendously tragic story because it's this, this loop that is taking place, mm. a, a historical loop where we, rather than really trying to get at some of the root causes, we just seem to replicate it and, with, and displace the abject to another despised group. Mm. And I mean, you go even further back in history, and you, you quote, well, it, originally it comes from Conrad, Joseph Conrad, doesn't it, in Heart of Darkness and Exterminate All the Brutes, and talking about how all of this really goes so far back, and the wonderful film that was made by that Haitian filmmaker, Raoul Peck. Raoul Peck, yeah, yeah, which was based in part on Sven Lindquist's book that came out in the beginning of the 90s, Exterminate All the Brutes, which is trying to get at the mindset, the exterminatory mindset that spasms throughout Western history. And the thesis of Lindquist's book and then Raoul Peck's film, which was a multi-part HBO series, um, is that we are sort of taught to understand the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews as a sort of singular event that can't be put into an arc of history, that it was so, so barbaric, so violent, so extreme, that even to make any comparisons is to belittle it, right? And I think quite bravely, 
they challenge that narrative and make the argument that at its heart is this impulse to to cast another group as subhuman, as brutes, and to often beginning with a kind of a civilization, you know, and I will civilize the brutes, but then it necessarily, they argue, tips into this annihilation mm. impulse. And they date it to the Spanish Inquisition in Europe and the impulse to exterminate Jews and Muslims from Andalusia. And then that that coincides precisely with when Columbus sets sail and then that annihilatory impulse wreaks havoc on the Americas and commits genocide against indigenous people there and goes to Africa and the scramble for Africa does the same there. And then... With the British running their concentration camps, which is often forgotten, and the Germans too. And then loops back to Europe. And and when it comes home to Europe, the response is, this is alien. We don't know what this is. We can't compare it to anything. And that absolves mm. the rest of Europe and the Americas from the story. And the possibility of learning the lessons of that exterminatory... Uh, exterminate the brutes on the frontier, which is a very, very key concept as well, right? Mm. That you, that it's it, it's intimately connected to colonialism, right? And so, Hitler was engaged in a colonial process, and he openly talked about how he was inspired by the Western frontier myths. And does anybody, and, you know, and said things like, "Well, does anybody think about the Indians?" you know, who were killed when we eat bread from Canada. Nobody will think about the Ukrainians now, you know. And this was his search for, for elbow room. And so we it's quite rare to talk about the Nazis as having been inspired by these forms of settler colonialism in the Americas. But he clearly was. And I guess where that, you know, where where I I see that tragedy most acutely, that failure to to get at the root, this is why I, you know, I admire what, what Peck attempted to do with that film, is that if we don't understand that Hitler was inspired by settler colonialism, then we can tell ourselves that the way to repair the harm from the Holocaust is to allow Jews to become settler colonialists in, Pal- you know, on Palestinian land. And so we're still in the loop. And so... You know, that's part of the story this book tells. It takes some unexpected twists and turns. It really does. And you know what? There's humour in it too. I mean, it's it's a funny book in some point and an absolutely shocking one in others. And of course, it also tells us, I mean, as well as the mirror world and you talk about the Shadowlands, but it also tells us about your own experience during coronavirus and particularly how that affected Naomi Wolf, what she did during that time and how Steve Bannon and Donald Trump were absolute turning points points for her, I guess, and how these two worlds can really exist very closely because there is a hair's breadth sometimes between the conspiracy theory or the wrong conspiracy theory and reality. Yeah, I mean, I I thought my first reaction when she... So, as I said, I have been getting confused with her periodically, but it was just like, you know, it happened every four months or something like that. There would be like a couple of annoying tweets and I would post... Could you please keep your Naomi straight? Oh, sorry, so sorry. 
<laughs> it wasn't really a big deal. There were moments of cringe. Like she published a book called Vagina, and it was like really, really intimate about her orgasms. And anybody who knows me knows that I'm like just so <laughs> repressed. Like that's like if you if you you could not design anything <laughs> more sort of perfectly pitched to just humiliate me. But I'll tell you, there's something liberating about it because I am a pretty controlled person. You know, I've worked over now 25 years in the public eye to maintain a certain control over my public image. And not talk about your vagina. I don't. I very rarely talk about it, you know. (laughs) And I I think because with my first book, I was sort of thrust into the public eye in, in a way that was, you know, I just felt like, I mean, No Logo was a bit of a weird experience. I wrote it in my 20s. It hit at a moment where this movement that I had been writing about, which had been quite small, just exploded onto the streets, the altered globalization movement. And I was suddenly anointed by the press as like the face of this movement. Nobody elected me. Nobody. It was just like, you are the face of this. And because of that, you know, I pushed back as best I could, but I also played the game. And But I really felt like I had the weight of the left on my shoulders in the in the early 2000s. And so I was very careful about my public image. I mean, paranoid careful. I would not go to a Starbucks because because it happened once. I was photographed, you know. Somebody went through my garbage and took photographs of Diet Coke cans. So I got very paranoid and very controlling about where what I would be seen doing because I was sure people were going to use it against me. And not just against me, against the whole movement. You know, a newspaper in Canada started a column called Klein Watch, which was just like, we're going to try to catch her going to the gap. You know? <laughs> That's outrageous. Yeah, but it really shaped my personality. Like, it made me very kind of tightly wound. I also have, like, hippie parents. So they also always felt like I needed to, like, guard against their outrageousness, you know, because <laughs> my mom was very much a free spirit. When I was growing up, she would just, like, you know, go skinny dipping in lakes where she shouldn't do that. So I, I was, like, I was the controller, right? And so it's a funny thing when you have a doppelganger who's really nothing like you when it comes to things like that. And she's writing about her orgasms and she's so, let's just say, like a looser with her sourcing. (laughs) Um, You know, my books have these endless footnotes, you know, because I'm like, I will. My reviewer once said she piles up her facts like skyscrapers, you know. And so all these things that I had done to try to protect myself. It was clear that it was, it didn't matter. And so this book was really freeing because when COVID happened and, and she was so active in the early months of COVID online and she, she was really the vanguard of the COVID conspiracies, and she was against basically every public health measure. It wasn't clear to me if she thought COVID was real because she would say like undercover of a supposed public health emergency, they're taking away our freedoms. And so she would be, she would come out I think she thought it was real. It's, it's unclear to me. She was against the masks. She was against the school closures, even in the early days when we didn't have any other tools. She was against the vaccines. She was against the vaccine apps. But it was also incredibly contradictory because one minute she'd be like, COVID is a bioweapon, but we should also do nothing about it. And the vaccines are the bioweapon. It was just, um, this is sometimes described as, conspiracy without the theory, right? Because it's it, it's really just throwing stuff at the wall. And I've seen this before because I've, you know, what I've been working on for the past 15 years is the climate crisis. And this is what climate deniers do. They don't have a coherent theory around 
warming. They just throw a bunch of things at the wall. It's sunspots. It's not that bad. It isn't happening. It's the Earth's rotation. It's this and that. Basically, you just get confused and you sort of give up. That's what it's designed to do. You know, our product is doubt. Mm. So when she started really, really making a name for herself on COVID, COVID denial of various kinds, it got so, I think because we were all online so much, and the only thing representing me to the world was my little avatar. I was no longer in the world, as, as so many of us weren't. And I just kind of lost all control over myself. I was, as far as I could tell from all my mentions, I was her. You know? And it began to, it, it felt really just like, what have I spent my life doing? Like creating this sort of self that can just disappear through the actions of someone else. And then I just started to find it unbelievably funny and <laughs> really interesting. And I think I just did what I do, like to get control over my own life, which is research and try to make some sense, make a map. And I guess this is a long way of saying, I think being as controlled as I was about my public persona was not fun. And I'm actually kind of grateful to her for inserting so much ridiculous into my life that I had to just give up, throw my hands up. Who cares? And in fact, I mean, I'm not absolutely not going to say what you say at the end of the book, because I think it's wonderful to, to keep that for readers. But you talk about Francois Brunette and that love your doppelganger, love your lookalike. I am not a lookalike. He's got these, he's a, he's a Montreal photographer, yeah. Francois Brunette, and he has taken photographs of hundreds of doppelgangers. And his criteria is they have to have been confused with one another in the real world, like had that experience yeah. of going through the world and somebody talking to them as if they had seen them somewhere where they never were and so on. And yeah, the, the photographs are, are wonderful. I really encourage people to look it up. And they're joyful. These people yeah. are happy to meet somebody that they're confused with. And I think mm -hmm. that's where we ought to leave it because <laughs> we might give too much away. But the one thing I, I really need to say is that this is such an important book. You know, from Shakespeare's time onwards, we have always been looking at these, at these doppelgangers, at these twins, at this mirror world. And you, I mean, you say your speciality is joining up the dots. Your life's work is connecting things. And you have absolutely made sense of the world for me through this, looking at these various connections. And all I can say is, people, you have to read Doppelganger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Uh, Naomi, many you. thanks for, for coming on. Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World is by Naomi Klein. It's published by Penguin. It comes out on the 12th of September. <laughs> You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall, Tamsin Howard and Helmi Palai. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.